Welcome back to the Jack McDonald Show here on CRCFM. Now, my next guest, very, very interesting. He spent 14 years undercover in the UK's police force tackling crime, specifically drug crime. He has since left the force and become an advocate for decriminalizing drugs. He's the author of the best-selling Good Cop, Bad War. Neil Woods, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jack. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's, it's truly, Neil, it's truly a pleasure to have you on. So, if we can start, I suppose, at the start, how did you get into the police force? Uh, well, it, it was a whim, actually. Um, I went to university by mistake. And um, when I dropped out, I wondered what I was going to do. And I was going to go backpacking around Europe and follow some friends who were fruit picking and that kind of thing. But um, then I saw an advertisement for the police. And so I flipped a coin. Uh, and as it came up heads, that um, took me on the long journey, which has brought me all the way here to speak to you today. Wow. So when you got into the police force, did you have an idea that you would end up working undercover or how did you end up becoming an undercover cop? No, I had no idea at all. In fact, when I got into the police and started working on the streets, I realized um, that I was incredibly naive. I didn't realise how sheltered I'd been. And certainly I was a very terrible police officer for the first couple of years. And it was more about just hanging on to my job and just to prove I could survive the first two years rather than any ambitions of complex covert policing. But um, I survived in the job. And after four years, I got an attachment to the drug squad. The reason for that is that there was the mother of all moral panics going on. Uh, in the UK, as, as in much of Europe at the time, because tabloid newspapers have been talking for years about what would happen when crack cocaine hit the streets. And of course, and th then they did. However, by that point, the tabloid newspapers and the news had whipped up everyone into a state of fear and moral panic about this uh, this problem. So the Home Office, picking up on that, directed all of the police to invest massively in drugs policing and, and that's where I stepped in um, and really the beginning of the kind of undercover work that I did was then um, because th you know the, the, that kind of word I did hadn't been done before in the UK. So going undercover was that a big shift did you have to I suppose you probably had to go through training what was the experience like going from a self-admitted kind of struggling cop making it day to day to now taking this big leap to go undercover and go face to face with the criminals that perhaps you had been doing paperwork on before well I mean I was I felt very pleased to be able to do this this work because it was entirely about drugs investigations and I'd been taught that the very worst people in our communities were, were drug dealers so I was pleased to be doing that kind of work but there was no training at all I was just thrown in at the deep end and so I was literally making it up as I went along I helped design the training for other undercover officers uh, for four or five years later but for those first first few years it was it was just surviving by the seat of my pants really I've got to say, um, that seems bizarre. You know, you're, you're taking your life in your hands there and there isn't even so much as an ABCs as how to do this. No, I mean, I, I'm not saying that undercover work, police work hadn't happened before because certainly it had for at least since before 1968. But that was high-end undercover work. This was 
the opposite. This was low end. This was starting at the ground level and trying to meet people and network with people and and work my way up through organisations from the ground level, which as me, as many under full undercover cops, you know, spoke to me later on said that I was crazy for doing that, and it was actually far more dangerous than the work they did. But no, it, it was a very um, laissez-faire sort of casual approach to this and you know i've got almost got myself killed several times but but yet there was there was no training at all no real consideration for 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 my safety looking looking back Mm. and no real understanding of of just how much how dangerous the streets were becoming is with every with every passing year because and this is an important point actually the first time i bought heroin or crack cocaine it wasn't actually that dangerous, but it became dangerous because organised crime quickly became aware of the presence of people like me on the streets. And so, you know, what, and, and this is important to note that with every passing year, it became more and more dangerous. So the danger and the violence on the streets, I now realise, of course, is actually down to the attempts to solve this problem through policing whereas there is no policing solution to drugs. It's, it's a health issue. So the violence that we see, you know, the growth of gangs, the monopolization of gangs, um, the violence that's used to protect the drug trade on our streets, this is all a response to policing. This has been caused by the policy of trying to deal with drugs by, by policing, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I mean, police are incredibly good at catching drug dealers. They are. I was particularly good at it. But police never reduce the size of the market. Over time, we do change the shape of that market. And when we see the violence, um, increased stabbings, shootings, this is the changing shape that's being created by an attempt to deal with it through policing. Well, of course, uh, as time went on, you would, I suppose, become apprehensive and ultimately maybe bashful of your involvement. But before that that was the case, when you were scoping out a target, when they came to you and they said, Neil, we want you to go and do this undercover mission, what would the steps be like? What was your approach in building trust? Because, you know, you didn't have training, so... Well, you know, was it, uh, you know, I suppose, muddying up your coat? How, how did maybe the way you talked, the way you walked, how did you build trust with these street level dealers? Well, there's many facets to that. The most important thing is to have a credible um, legend. Uh, that's the technical word for a sort of background story. And what I would do as I went into any inner city area is I would get to know people in order to build credible links to the community around me now from an undercover cops point of view what i would you know what i would do is i would pick on the most vulnerable people to manipulate and if that sounds ruthless well well it is ruthless the most vulnerable people were the easiest to manipulate and i i, I knew I, I became aware that i was causing those people emotional harm you know meeting me was literally going to be the worst thing that 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 in their lives um but i justified to myself doing that because i believed that the end 
justified the means that I was causing harm to these individuals, but it was justified because at the end of the operation, I would catch the gangsters. And that's like a sort of microcosm of the wider war on drugs, both regionally, nationally and internationally. This idea that we can cause harm to individuals to solve a bigger problem. But collectively, we're ignoring the fact that this is making the bigger problem get worse with every passing year. But at the time, I didn't realise that. So I caused harm to these people. I manipulated vulnerable people so that they would introduce me with all credibility to the organised crime gangs who were um, a step up away from the street dealing, who were, who were further up the ladder. And so that, that's how I, I managed to work my way through. I got people to introduce me, to back me, um, and I would spend all sorts of time building my legend and my reputation by doing things like um, shoplifting, selling apparently stolen goods to different dealers and stolen property, just so I had that reputation of somebody who was who was behaving in a in a certain way. Shoplifting was great fun, by the way. <laughs> it really was, you know. But you know, if you if you've got a get out of jail free card, then then it can certainly be good fun, but not perhaps so much fun for those people who are who are struggling with life. But I I had I had a laugh. <laughs> what is? Do you have an idea or a favorite thing that you shoplifted in your time? Well, it was always fascinating working out what people wanted and, and what would fetch money, um, because obviously it makes it more believable if you know the market that, that, uh, where you are. And in poorer communities, you know, certainly in the summer, the thing that would always fetch money is children's clothes and, and school uniforms for the for the coming year for school uniforms, because kids grow up so fast, don't they? And they're always needing clothes. And uh, I find that a bit sad, really, and, and perhaps um, a real indictment of society that the panic from families creating the, a need to to willingly spend money on stolen property was because they can't afford to clothe their children. Yeah. And, um, well, it, it, it's some kind of comment on society, I think, anyway. Certainly, yeah, not a, not a good comment as well. When you were posing and, you know, building this legend, would you be posing as a junkie or as, I suppose, more of a functioning drug user? What kind of, how, how were you tilting those scales? Yeah, I mean, not every time. But when I started off, I was, uh, I sort of pretended to be a bit of a traveling thief. I suppose the Northern, Northern England phrase is a traveling, is a scally. I don't suppose you have that word in Ireland. Um, not really. Uh, but but someone someone who's a who's a travelling thief, so I would be talking about committing low level commercial burglaries, car theft, that kind of thing. But later on, I realised that actually the thing that opened the most doors really was if I pretended to be part of the community, which was really on the fringes and really struggling. So people who were homeless or living in squats or on the edge of that kind of community. So the people who were the most problematic consumers of of heroin and or or crack cocaine but you, you use the word we we in the in the world of drug policy reform we we avoid words like junkie or or things like that um because it's it adds to stigma and these are when, when we see someone struggling with a with problematic heroin use or the vast majority of them in fact in fact academic studies prove that at least two-thirds of problematic heroin users are self-medicating for childhood trauma so childhood neglect physical abuse or sexual abuse 
And a lot of the rest of the people are self-medicating for trauma or mental health problems which they've developed as adults. So when we see somebody who is struggling with heroin, we shouldn't be judging them or labeling them with stigmatizing names. We should be asking what happened to you and how can we take care of you? Certainly when I use the term junkie, it doesn't carry an implicit or certainly from myself, it doesn't carry an implicit commentary. It's more, you know, the state somebody has embroiled themselves in with the use of the drug. But from your perspective, what is the better term to use for somebody who is really embroiled in a heroin or, or otherwise a drug, uh, I suppose, addiction? Someone who has a substance use disorder or someone who is using a drug problematically. So there's no one word. It's more of a description and an understanding, really. But I mean, language is, I mean, you know, almost every um, newspaper reporter or or media interviewer also use the same word. So you, you're not the only person I've made this comment to. I challenge the use of that word and many other words all of the time. But what I do point out that, you know, back in the 1970s, newspapers would quite happily use words um, that were very derogative to homosexuals that no one would in their in a in a million years dream of using you know so it it's it's important to note that our society changes and we are in the process of change because the social movement is growing um, for those people who want drug law reform the social movement is growing for those people who want to understand and care for people who are using substances problematically rather than judge them. And, you know, this is important to realise that we're in the midst of a change. We're in the midst of a, of a growing social movement because you know, I, I went to, I'm, I'm 51. And when I was at school, say between the ages of 13 and 15, everybody was prejudiced against homosexuals. No one would come out as being homosexual. And people would bully, you know, bullies would pick on people uh, who they perceived might be homosexual. And this is a normal thing. If I was to meet any one of the people that I went to school with, any of them, not one of them would admit to being prejudiced as a youngster. They would all want to appear to be completely enlightened, like they've always been enlightened. And, and they would all protest that being homosexual is perfectly normal and no one should be prejudiced against them. And that's social movement in, in action because change happens to a point where everyone wants to feel like they were a part of it from the beginning and this this will happen in the future with drug policy fewer and fewer people in the future will admit that they ever thought there was anything wrong with someone choosing to consume cannabis instead of alcohol or 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 taking mdma and dancing in a field to some repetitive music or having a line of cocaine with their pint of beer on a Friday night. The, the, the future, in the future, people will look back in horror at the prejudice and the stigma that we still perpetuate at the moment. But, but I have to let everyone know, everyone should be aware. Times are changing and you will be judged. The times are changing. I wondered as well, you know, in, in the modern era, especially with TV, people kind of almost idolize 
drug dealers, drug kingpins, from Top Boy to Power to Breaking Bad. There's a, there's a real, I suppose, you know, accountants go home from their nine to five and they, I suppose, they escape in the idea of perhaps living above the law. As somebody who did come face to face with a lot of these kingpins, drug lords, etc., did you have any admiration? Were you impressed by any of them? That's an interesting question, actually. Um, I, I never really liked any of the proper gangster types. They were always rather uh, unpleasant people. But yeah, I mean, I admired the efficiency and and uh, how good some of them were at it. But of course, you know, policing drugs means that the most violent and ruthless people are the most successful. And also that some of the cleverest. So, you know, that the whole system refines the marketplace and means that the, the most successful people stand out. Um, and, you know, sometimes I've met people and I've thought, wow, if you could just put your energies into something legitimate, you could probably be successful at any business. But, but of course, the opportunity that's been created by drug prohibition means that there's more money to be made in, in illicit drugs than anything else. So that's what attracts people to it. And, a great number of the people I've met who are who are decent drug dealers wouldn't consider for a moment committing any other form of crime at all, because all of the other crime is too high a risk with too little gain. So venturing into the drug market and behaving as they needed to in order to succeed within that market is a rational choice, a rational choice created by the opportunities that are there. So uh, it's important to note that, you know, that, that this is this is an opportunity that has been created. It's not something that's happened because people are bad. People have become bad because of that opportunity and that's how they need to behave. I'll give you one example to back that up, actually. There's a 16 year old I met in Leicester when I was doing an undercover operation there. And he was a really likable lad. I could have a laugh with him. But six months later, he'd become an absolutely terrifying 17-year-old. Because during that period of time, with his with his with the time that he spent with the other gang members of which he was a part of, he had had to modify, change, and develop his behavior in order to survive on the streets and to become good at what he did. Because rival dealers, they have to come, they have to make sure that they're not grassed up. They have to make sure that they've got a reputation which protects them. And, you know, and the situation has been created where the most violent or rather people who are prepared to be the most violent become the most successful dealers. And, you know, there's no way as a 14, 15 year old, he imagined himself growing up to be a, an extremely violent drug dealer. But it was the circumstances in which he found himself taking up that opportunity, which meant that he changed forever. He changed to become a violent person. So, you know, when, when, when we see the news and we see news of a stabbing or we see the news of a shooting or some young man or collection of young men being sent to prison, you know, we have to bear in mind that it's the market, it's the situation, it's policy, which is, which is changing our young men and making them violent. And I don't think there's, any wide understanding of that at all that it's policy that's taken us to this position and, and and if 
know, and it's and thank you for being able to for allowing me to at least get this message out and try and help people understand that. Keeping with the idea of the media, one of the really interesting films depicting undercover work, and of course it is a film with uh, with Johnny Depp in the centre, so there is of course some fictionality to it, but is Donny Brasco, where an undercover cop becomes essentially a part of the life and he basically ditches the legal side of it. Did you ever find that you were identifying more with the legend, the character you had created, than your own self? No, not really. Um, I mean, there was... But, I mean, Donnie Brasco is more of an example of, like, level one undercover work, where it's a full full infiltration. Um, I mean, I did... I I was fully immersed in, in the plot and the areas where I worked for several days at a time, but I did manage to get regular breaks to, to leave the plot as well. Um, but I mean, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't associate with that kind of violent criminality because it's not, it was never part of my role to be violent or part of that behavior. That's not, that's not the role I took, but I certainly did later on identify more with the ethics of some of the problematic heroin users than I did my own colleagues, because certainly where I worked in Brighton, I met some incredible people. I met incredible people on the streets all, all over all over the place. But in Brighton, I met some such extraordinary clever people who were really interesting and and had a really really good ethical view of the world. And then unfortunately, whereas in many places the police I'd worked with were, were really good people, in Brighton they really weren't. They were unpleasant, bullying, and obnoxious people who would laugh when a problematic heroin user would die. So, you know, I found myself having much more sympathy with the people I was spending time with undercover than I did for the views of the of the police officers that I would be, um, that I had as my backup team. So nothing as dramatic as Donnie Darko, I'm afraid, but, I, but certainly in terms of individual ethics, um, I, I had much more in common with them. So eventually you decided to retire or at least leave the police force was that a difficult decision to make and how long was the period of time when you started to have questions about your impact in the uh, the drug problem in the UK to actually uh, handing in your badge and leaving the police force well I started having doubts really after a few years doing the work but I was sort of the thing is, I was resistant to those doubts because you get so invested in in your expertise. You know, I was very pleased with being good at what I was doing. Also, you, there's a certain amount of youthful arrogance as well, um, you know, because I had so many near-death experiences and I was so pleased with myself that I could get through those and still function well. I enjoyed the reputation that I was developing at being good at it. So, you know, you have so much invested in, in the work and doing and, and doing the work that I was resistant to the growing con- conclusions that were growing at the back of my mind. And eventually the penny dropped, you know, I was a bit slow and I was slow to understand truthfully, but eventually I, I, I couldn't resist the logic of what I was seeing before me that with every passing year that, you know, the streets are becoming more and more violent um, and part of that reason was was the presence of people like me on the streets. And, you know, I, I told you earlier about that ethical decision, you know, the decision to keep going with it because the end justified the means. Well, 
when I worked for Northampton, I spent seven months um, gathering evidence against the Burger Bar Boys, a really ultra-violent drug gang. Almost got killed a couple of occasions, I, I believe, on that on that operation. And um, after seven months of work, knowing that I'd caught every single person involved in the trade, because I'd got every single phone number, I'd met every single person who'd been described to me. And there was evidence gathered against 96 people, six of the Bergamot boys and 90 other people. So I thought, wow, this, this operation is going to have such a huge impact. I'm catching everybody. But the cop who was tasked with keeping his ear to the ground um, to, to, to suss out the impact of the operation told me afterwards, he says, yeah, we managed to interrupt the heroin and crack cocaine supply for a full two hours. Seven months of work, 96 people arrested, hundreds of police involved, an absolute fortune in expenditure and almost getting myself killed for the sake of interrupting the supply for two hours. Now, you know, that makes a lie to the end justifying the means, doesn't it? And it certainly makes a lie to all of the ethical justification that I made to myself. And, you know, I should emphasise that I'm part of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which is an international organization. I'm on the board for the operation for the organization in the United States and here in Europe, particularly Leap UK. And so I speak to cops all over the world. And what I can tell you honestly is that that experience of the futility of that massive operation is replicated everywhere, at every level. We never reduce the size of the market. There are too many people dying to take advantage of the opportunity that the market creates. So we never reduce it. And yet we cause massive harm to vulnerable peoples. We pursue an attempt to, to deal with drugs by policing. So it's worse than futile. It's causing harm both to individuals and to society. We're making organized crime more monopolized, more powerful. And as a result of that, directly corrupting our entire institutions, including other criminal justice institutions and the police. So whichever way you look at it, our current drug policy is an utter, utter catastrophe. It's a growing crisis. Now, I was slow, as I say, I really was slow in coming to those conclusions. And so that's why I decided that I had to dedicate my time to explaining these things to other people in simpler terms so that other people, and you know, a lot of people listening to this will understand this a lot quicker than I was able to do. But understand it, we must. And, you know, if you do understand this and you realize the need for change, then, then you are also, you are now part of this social movement for change. And this social movement is only going in one direction. But I would implore any of you, any of you listening to this, you know, do what you can, do what you can to make this social movement grow more. Get your parents or your friends to also listen to this or, or listen to other reformers talk about this. Listen to other people from, from my organisation. Because all we're saying to you is basic truths. We refer only to evidence, not ideology. Uh, because it's ideology that's got us into this mess in the first place. Powerful, powerful, no doubt. 
So in 2016, you released Good Cop, Bad War. Now, walk me through the process. So obviously, you had your feelings as you left the force, but it's a far step, isn't it, to go from leaving a police force to actually becoming a person within the media and basically becoming, as you say, an advocate for change. What was that experience like? It was a pain in the arse, to be honest, because (laughs) essentially... Essentially, I am an introvert. I don't like attention. Um, I just like a quiet life to read books and uh, you know, to, and, and to talk about things, listen to music and enjoy live music, that kind of thing. I, if if you told me in say twenty twelve that I that in the future I would write a book of my memoirs and expose myself to public scrutiny, I would have laughed at you. I really would. So the whole, the whole process of getting my head around doing that and the necessity to do that was, was quite difficult, really. And I was only just starting to get my head around uh, the fact that I've got post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Um, so that made a sort of slight added complication to, to, to going public and, and having scrutiny. But... I, I teamed up with a brilliant writer, um, J.S. Raffaele, who, who who helped me write Good Cop, Bad War. And what he did is brought some quality to it. And the most important thing about that is knowing what to leave out, what to cut down, because there's so much material that could have got in there. But it had to have the right story arc. You know, the, the, the memoirs had to go into a three-act structure. Um, so everything was trimmed down, made, you know, made... made um, you know, just so much was cut out of that of that book. Uh, but that you know, his skills made it successful. You know, and it does read like a crime thriller. That's what I'm told, um, and that's what we aimed for. So, so it's been really, really successful, and 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 I'm glad about that because it had to be to reach a decent audience, really. And it doesn't preach; it just presents things as they are, and in the hope that any reasonable person could come to the reasonable conclusions as a result of that. Neil, in your utopia, in, you know, and maybe it will come to pass in 10 or 15 years time, how would it practically lay out? Would you be able to go into Tesco at 18 or 21 and purchase a certain set amount of heroin? Would it be through a doctor? What, what would your idea of the right approach to drugs be? Well, we should be clear, there is no possibility of a utopia with drug policy because drugs are difficult to deal with. They are. Um, there's there's never going to be a perfect society because there will always be some kind of problem in dealing with problematic drug use. But making them criminal is the worst possible way to deal with drugs and the, the best possible way of causing problematic substance use because criminalising people allows them to be exploited by organized crime. But in terms of uh, the best drug policy, uh, the best best possible drug policy has been worked out by some very clever people who are allies of uh, of ours at LEAP. They're an organization called Transform Drug Policy Foundation, and they literally have the answers to all of the questions. And drugs should be regulated according to their relative harms. Now, if you bear in mind that according to very good scientific studies of comparison, the most problematic drug is alcohol by some considerable way. 
Um, and so alcohol could be regulated far better. Where in countries where regulation is stricter, such as Norway, there are less deaths from alcohol and less health harms and less costs to the health service from alcohol. So we can regulate alcohol better. And we should approach other drugs in the same way in that it's time to get them under control because they're out of control at the moment. It, it, it's, we, it's the Wild West. We've surrendered control to, to, to criminals. So each drug has different harms. So you mentioned heroin. Heroin would never be for sale so freely. We would always only have a medical model for heroin. Go back to the British system where problematic use is dealt with by prescribing heroin. And then people can seek help for that when they feel able to do so, but they will be more able to do so if they are not being exploited by organised crime. For cannabis, we have the Canadian model to look to, or the Uruguay model, or maybe the Spanish model. Um, I, I like the Canadian model, but we, but we must do better than Canada. Canada has licensed outlets for people to buy uh, regulated um, amounts and regulated types of cannabis. Um, but the problem that Canada have done, what they've done is they've, they've made two essential mistakes in their regulation. One is that their regulated outlets are not universally providing the highest quality so that some people feel that they can get higher quality on the illicit market. That's quite a mistake. Uh, and also they've taxed it too high so that it's twice the price of the illicit price. And that's no good. If you look at the way Uruguay have done it, they did the opposite. They've undercut the illicit market so much that why would anyone go to the illicit market? It's only a dollar a gram from the pharmacy. So, so you know, price is an important regulatory tool. But for all of the other drugs in between, you know, you, they, you have to regulate them according to their harm. So, for example, MDMA, ecstasy, is the perfect example of a drug which is not banned because it's dangerous, it's dangerous because it's banned. If you look at all of the deaths that's been caused by MDMA, they've either not been caused by MDMA, it's been caused by something in the tablet that people didn't know was there, or they've died because the tablet contains four times the dose for a big, strong, healthy adult, and that can cause overdoses. So. Regulation will save lives, and MDMA is a relatively safe drug with the correct dosage and the correct information, harm reduction information. So you should be able to buy the accurate dose of MDMA from a licensed pharmacy in a blister pack with a guarantee on the side of that box that it's been manufactured in the correct clean laboratory to certain conditions, and that the measured dose is, for example, 0. 089 um, of a milligram for a large for, for a normal sized adult so you know and the uh, the most difficult drug to regulate is always going to be cocaine because of its preferred method of, of consumption and also the short-lasting effect of it which encourages redosing um, but transform have just produced a book explaining the best ways of regulating uh, cocaine in their book, uh, Stimulants, How to Regulate Stimulants. Um, and, but we, we must remember that whatever difficulties there are 
in fine tuning the regulation around such substances like that, it's never ever going to be any kind of problem compared with the problems we have now. Because anyone who wants cocaine can get it now. And we don't know what's in that cocaine. Some cocaine will contain 12 different adulterants, including a cattle wormer, which is quite dangerous to the body. So a regulated system will never be perfect in everyone's eyes, but it's the, the least worst option. And most importantly, from a policing perspective, a regulated system takes money, a lot of money, out of the hands of organised crime because that money is being used to corrupt our system and undermine our very economic institutions. Certainly, it does seem like Neil Woods may be at the front of a movement that uh, 10, 15 years time, I think, certainly will be top of mind for a lot of individuals. Neil, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jack. It's, it's, uh, it's been good speaking with you. Great. That was the excellent Neil Woods. We'll be back after this.